Hi, I'm Scott Fitzpatrick. Welcome to the GAF Podcast. This podcast is for professionals who want to work in the advisory space. It's a series of conversations and essential frameworks to give better advice. It's the stuff they don't teach you at uni. It's where value sits. So buckle in, volume up, let's go. In this podcast, I interview Jim Stackpool, a 30-year veteran of training, coaching and mentoring advice firms. Jim shares his tips in taking the industry to a profession. Welcome to the GAF podcast. My name's Scott Fitzpatrick. Very excited to have Jim Stackpool here, 30-year veteran in the industry, one of the leaders in coaching and training. Great to have you here today, Jim. Thanks, Scott, and thanks for having me on. Veteran, oh, my God, I'm sounding old. I know, mate. It's nice. Actually, we're just remembering that uh, we initially met through Malcolm Payne. Uh, yeah, the great Malcolm Payne. One of the pioneers of, of business planning. Oh, yeah, well and truly, absolutely well and truly. So, Jim, maybe for everyone listening today, just a little bit of your background. How did you get into this coaching and training space? Well, initially, Scott, like most of us, it was accidental. Um I came out of uh, uni, uh, went into computer industry back in the uh, early 80s, um, and we made a lot of money really quickly um, selling computer solutions, we used to call them, uh, but really they were hardware solutions. Um, but our skill and expertise was software. Um, so despite, um, how would you say, um, our focus trying to be you know, selling the soft stuff and helping people with solutions, we actually made the money off the commission on the hardware. And very quickly, we didn't, weren't able to compete. Um, we went from a firm of 50, 60 people down to, and, and from beginning in the mid, mid 80s, we're, we're running that sort of, um, that used to be called the mini market in computers. And very quickly, we couldn't sustain the wages of the people we had because, you know, cheaper machines were coming out and taking out commissions at, at much cheaper rates. And even though we're good at software, because our proposition was so strong on hardware, uh, we, we sort of really faltered towards the late 80s, and then we hit sort of huge interest rates and all that sort of stuff. But thankfully, uh, as fate would have it, I was picked up by a group called the Financial Management Research Centre at the University of New England in Armidale, um, because the way we used to go about selling our solutions was education. So we'd, we'd go into small sessions with doctors or dentists or architects, engineers, surveyors, or whoever we were actually selling the computers to, and we'd run a training session on aspects of computers. Anyway, long, long story short, over then with FMRC at the university for three years. Um, and through there, they introduced a, a, a training element, which was run in 1989, was the first one, and they gave it to me to run called the Agent as a Business Person. Ah. And that was that was a Greenmount Resort, um, ah. 1989, October 1989, where, you know, that was back in the days of $3,000 tax deduction for super. Yep, yep. And um, I was there in front of 30 or 40 I think it was MLC advisors at the time, and uh, they were on a three-day joint. This was the top of their table talking about how to build your practice to run as an agent as a business person. Wow. And it started from that. Uh, from sales to business. To, yeah, the whole – and I think there was a couple of uh, accountants speaking alongside me, and, and we are talking simply about things like cost per desk. We are talking things about HR processes, motivating staff, um, building – going beyond dependency models. Uh, we, we were pretty good at stats, and so we used to know that sort of return for a paid advisor, we return for client, um, we used to know the face-to-face time stats and things like that. So we could bring in these sets of statistics 
um, back then. And FMRC, uh, not, no longer going, but then a great model run by a guy called Professor Jeff Meredith. And um, he had championed this business benchmarking stuff. Anyway, long and short of it, I, I sort of left the uni FMRC environment. I was a bit of a square pig and a round hole from their perspective. And then in 1991, uh, set up uh, what is now Certainty Advice Group. And, and just for those listening now, I know you know you're very well known, but in the, the financial planning, but maybe not so much in accounting and legal. Mm-hmm. Your group mm-hmm. today is focusing on training, coaching, mentoring advisors into how to build yep. great practices. I think the thing we stand out on now, Scott, with so we've got Australia's sort of standard uh, for professional impartial advice that's been granted to us by the ACCC and IP Australia. Um, and we actually took it off the back of a work we did with accountants uh, back in two, between two, 2008 2012 over quite a period of time. They forged a standard called, built by the Accounting Professional Ethical Standards Board called APS 230, which was introduced for only about three months before it was watered down. But basically that standard back then said that um, any accountant in Australia practicing financial planning was, was, would be ceased from 2016 or 17 was introduced would not be able to take a trial, would not be able to take a commission, would not be able to take anything aligned to the product. And because we work with firms that were all working that way and that was what they saw as their model, uh, they saw themselves as being paid on the value the client was ascribing to their work. We, we, that's a great model, it's a great champion. And so when it was dropped by the APS 230 uh, and watered down, we then started working with IP Australia in 2015. And in 2019, would you believe, we got it, we got the standard. And so we now train people to that standard where they engage with the client and the client pays purely upon the value to the client. Um, and whilst there's some some inkling, obviously, about funds under management and some inkling about hours work, it's not based upon that, simply based upon what we perceive in the client right. saying, this is and, valuable to me. And that's something I want to talk to you about in, in pricing as we as we go through this session. Mm-hmm. But Jim, let, let's start at the start. Where are we up to as a, in, in the journey from sales to, you know, to a profession, do you think, at the moment? I keep saying, Scott, we've only just started. Um, you know, and I think that the next 10 years is going to go so much quicker than the last 10. Um, but I think when you sort of, we, if we could really look back, and even though you've been in it longer than I have. Oh, you're calling you know, me older than you? <laughs> Why is it, mate? <laughs> we, um, we've still got, we're only just starting in this, in a lot of ways. So I think it's, Put it this way, we, at the average age of the, of the advisor that now engages us, um, he or she's, I think it's now 36 or 37 years wow. old. Wow, wow. Yeah. Um, and whilst obviously we've got young at heart uh, girls and guys that are older than that, these are people who um, just see the only way of the future is engaging a client um, in a, without any vested interests. Okay, again, this is our sweet spot, without any vested yes. interests, where they want to act um, as per what we call the Plato principle, where the cure of a part of someone's life shouldn't be attempted without treating the whole of their life. And so with, whilst their skill may be in tax or their skill might be in investments or underwriting or superannuation or risk, whatever it might be, what they really, when they, their, their great days at the office is when they've helped the client move forward with, with really deliberate steps in their lives, regardless of the technical skill they've brought to the table, more the leadership skills they've brought to the table. Love it. So, this, where we are in terms of the evolution from sales to profession, I, I think that's been going on, but in some ways we're just, in some ways at a starting point again, because I, I think the great advisors, whether from accounting, legal, planning, 
in any background, I think the great advisors have always take what we see as, see as the Plato approach where I don't just want to be known as a knee surgeon that does great knees. I obviously want to help people have great lives. Yep. And the biggest the biggest issue why people will keep coming back is not because they've got a funds under management with me or not because they've got to do a tax return for them. It's because they can't get us anywhere else and we know their lives better than they do in some ways. We've got the objectivity. We can set them with the, sometimes the leadership to push them through the hard conversations or to pull them through. We can set that direction. We can set that path. We can bring that capability to the table if they need the capability either in-house or external but most importantly when they leave the appointments with us they're just more confident in their lives that they can get on and do what they need to do and someone's backing them um and i think capturing all that in a fee that says well you know okay there's a bit of a hourly rate in there and there might be a bit of product in there but you know what it is it's just that quintessential they're just a quality mob and we're happy to pay them and get access to that sort of group that's always there for us I love that. You, you certainly speak language, Jim. Mm. Now, the, let's talk about where the rubber hits the road, though, that I'm an advisor yeah. and I've got a 1,000 clients and I can see that, oh, my goodness, this is gonna, there's change occurring and I really want to play over the other side of the fence. How yeah. do I do yeah. that? How do I transition? Yeah. What skills like do I need? Dublin, you know, it's like that old Irish joke, you know, if you're trying to get to Dublin, I wouldn't be starting from here. <laughs> um, you know, if you've got a 1,000 clients, um, that's a tough gig these days. And I guess, again, the, the view that I'm seeing is with these late 30s, they don't have a thousand clients and they're, they're trying to, they're grappling with 120 clients. Yep. Um, and I think going back to Malcolm Payne's days, you know, the money is in the planning and, and the 80 20 rule about where we need to go. And, and maybe the old days was there was safety in having rows and rows and filing cabinets and filing cabinets yep. with this yep. space full of client names. Um, but I think in really forging forging uh, strong relationships. It comes down to that person who's holding those names. Okay, what business are you in? Are you in the business of helping people with product choice? That's fine. We need people like that. Or are you in the business of helping people with life choices? Well, that's that's a different business. Mm, um, you know, and I think whilst some firms, particularly regional firms, Scott, you know, in provincial firms, um, where they don't have rural firms, where they don't have the real number of other people they could pass clients onto. Yep. They might have a different division down a different corridor of the, of the firm. But most firms need to make that decision um, and uh, do what they do for their clients, which is plan and determine, uh, am I in the business of really helping clients make life choices and therefore that's a path to quality in small numbers or if I'm in the business of helping clients with product choices, that's a much harder game. You're going down the Woolies, Aldi, um, coal sort of line, um, commoditization, that's going to get tougher, but you may have a niche like the knee surgeon that stands out and you can do that sort of stuff. Yeah, I really like that. It's, and I, you know, this whole podcast was built with this, um, the, the backdrop of commoditization occurring across the professions. Yeah. Yeah, and, spot on. Yeah. and this, you know, I call it a race to the top or a race to the bottom. It depends on which race you'd like to be in, mm-hmm. in terms of trying to find yeah. those. Those yeah, I think we, we, just, we can see what happens. We can see what's happening in pathology, radiology. You can see what happens with the amalgamation dentistry practices. Um, and to a certain extent, you know, you look at the industry and it made its money less out of serving clients and more out of liquidity events than they optioned to be, you know, they buy a last resort or they got taken out by somebody else, which was more I'm arbitraging a client base as compared to building a profit model that makes consistent profits, builds consistent careers and really got satisfied clients. And it's built upon a system, not so much an individual, uh, that's got a good handshake and a great name and memory for names and, and knows the technical as well as the relationship links to each client. 
And so we see these 38-year-olds and 40-year-olds who they want to build a, a profitable business that sort of doesn't make them work ridiculous hours, knowing that the team coming through, the 20-year-olds, they're not going to repeat the careers of the 30-year-olds. They want, they want to have a greater return, more lifestyle choices in a quicker time than the principals. Um, but it's not being positioned in such a way, as long as I can put it all in this platform or all in this way, yep. I'll have a liquidity event. Uh, the people coming through will buy it off me. I might merge it with others as I go along. But I think this whole really good debate we've had about quality of life, quality of career, not just follow the um, yellow brick road and be the corporate, um, and not saying nothing against corporates, but I think we have to offer more diversity for those coming through than we may have in the past, which means having a liquidity event where the founder jumps out with a parachute may not always be the best way to actually build a, a what, I, what I'm calling a firm in the future, which is these new brands of advisory firms that are really, and, really good in a specific niches. And are you seeing that at the moment, Jim, where succession's a big issue for a lot of the older advisors wanting to get out of the no industry? No question. Yeah, no question. Yeah. Yeah, and unfortunately, it's, it's sort of like the departure lounge trying to get out of some countries at the moment. It's, it's getting a bit crowded, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, and unfortunately, and I think with the collapse of the AMP underwrote the whole BOLR market in Australia, I think. Yes. Um, and when that was exited, and, and, and dramatically so, um, with a lot of tears, it, it's sort of, I think a lot of the models that we were saying, okay, therefore maybe the renewal bases aren't what they were. You know, we've just written a piece, you know, on um, why would you buy another client base now uh, where you're picking up a lot of issues heading into uncertainty about FASCIA Standard 3 and 7 in particular, in terms of the new guidelines of how people are going to operate, and maybe you're picking up more of a liability than a renewal base. Yes. But more importantly... You know, as you pick up client bases, you, you know you're going to have to new, might have more resources. If you've struggled to make profitability and lifestyle returns with four people and then bring on more resources in the client base, you're all up to six or 16, what, what's going to be different if not even more ridiculous working hours? And yes, and then ultimately you probably only bought that client base for the 20% of the clients that were in there. Spot on. And you just, but you still got to make sure you meet all 100% of them. Yes. Um, and it takes you probably a year or 18 months to find the 20% that represent the future. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's very different dynamics, Scott. Um, and for someone that is trying to sell out and move out and, and maybe take a consultancy role, I'd say that the, the, the safety for those firms that, who, or those, those people that are looking to sell out, I think the safety is in amongst their client base, the 20% of clients that want them there as their lifelong CFO on their small board of their little family or their business or whatever it might be. And, and they get consulting rates out of that rather than trying to get a client base and not be able to sell off. Because like, I just think it, it, there's less and less need for for, um, for more and more client bases to be sold and, and less and less people willing to buy it, I think. Yeah, I think you're right. And Jim, that sort of leads me to, I know we were sort of circling this about, you know, what does a great advisory business look like for you? Is it, is, is it you can't really it, throw a blanket over it, but is it 80 no, clients, think, is it 50, is it... I, I, I think it depends, you know, it's always dependent, Scott, and I think it's not up to, we've seen great models where individuals, and we've got great models now in our books where individuals really want to keep the staff numbers really, really low. Um, they just have to put their prices really, really high. Yeah. Um, it, it's about access pricing. Yes, they, the clients can get it cheaper elsewhere, but they won't get the individual. Yes. Um, and they're, they're not against, they've been there, they've done it, they don't want to build a firm that's it's, it's too big, that keeps them off the golf course or off their boat or off the with their grandchildren or family, it's important to them. Um, and and is, is it a business? Yeah, okay, maybe not. It's maybe more like like a, a surgeon that once they stop, they stop. But I think in terms of the value they're adding of their clients, provided their clients are happy and, and still wanting to 
do business with that firm, knowing that okay, what happens if anyone happens to you? Um, and that's that's a business model, as is a model that people want to grow and develop, where there's a number of different advisor providers that are following a consistent approach to the to the advisory house, and um, there's consistent pricing, there's consistent propositions. I think, and again, this is really my bias, but the proposition's more around project management, client management, strategic yep. management. Yep. Um, they're the three core skills that need to be there. You may have a background in risk, law, accounting, underwriting, um, structures, tax, whatever. But those firms that are consistent at, at really understanding what is the best strategy for this client from the big picture perspective, um, what is the best plan to ensure it's delivered on time, on budget, to the satisfaction of the client without making our team work ridiculous hours to deliver, deliver it, um, and what are we doing managing the client, pushing them when they need to be pushed, pulling them when they need to be pulled, and helping them anticipate so they've got limited number of financial surprises or issues in their life because that's what they're paying off. They just want to live the life they want to do with their grandchildren or their golf courses or running their businesses or running their family. I love um, that, that stuff, those, Jim. Yeah. And Jim, just those, go on. Sorry, go on. I was yeah. going to say, those models tend to come down in terms yeah. of, you know, 1 to 80, 1 to 60. Yeah. Um, and again, depends on intensity. If you're really, really in a specific tiny niche, um, and we've got some firms that are that their speciality is one one fellow we work with. He's he and his firm specialise in farming families that have got mining. Um, uh, what do he calls them? Mining leases. Mining leases. Them. Yep. And he's really good at helping those sort of families who usually last partial holdings, uh, where they've got adjustments going through the place, and he's because he's ex mining. He's ex-pastoral, but a really small number of clients. He can't handle too many. And so the, he challenges, and I think we all challenge the client for life. You know, is, is it, do we still want the old files against the wall clients for life, or do we want them clients for as long as we're valuable to each other? Yeah. And so, and so this is where that firm is quite different to someone else who might have a really loyal set of clients, uh, just like someone who serves on a number of board positions, and then when those when some become available, they, they leave that and go and get another one. So it's hard to say what is the definitive model, but it's certainly going, in some ways, back to the future, what Malcolm Payne taught us is that money's in the planning and what is your core skill and just stick stick as much as you can to that and get deep and deep and deep and you'll generally find that the biggest challenge is not finding clients, it's finding team members who you're going to grow or just finding the, the fortitude to have a minimum price that doesn't make you worth ridiculous hours. Yes, and that that's a beautiful entree for me to bring in pricing. It's it's one of the. I need to thank you because it's one of the lines that I've stolen off you, um, and, and used quite often when I'm doing some chats around the place. But correct me if I'm wrong, but I think when pricing, you say we we should only ever win seven out of ten. Yeah, I think yeah, that was a, an old line. I, I think to a certain extent, just reading all the Ron Baker stuff, the Alan Weiss stuff, uh, Thomas Nagel stuff, you know, all these gurus whose shoulders I'm trying to climb up to. Um, the old line is if you're losing every client, something's wrong with your price or proposition. But equally, if you're winning every client, something's wrong with your price and proposition. And where's the sweet spot in between zero and 100? And generally for your core business, yeah, it's, it's two-thirds. Um, and, but when we, we've advanced that even further, saying when you're chasing breakthrough work uh, that will potentially fund your firm to another level, it should be one and two. And when you're chasing dream work, which will change, change your business forever, it's one and three. And so... Well, I might use I that think, too. I might use that, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, but again, it's, it's, the point is, is it not all business is good business, and this is where the difference is between the, the businesses you think they are getting it generally right, and the businesses that think they're going from one wobble to another, um, and finding the right a bit 
bit bumpier. And, and I think the one definition, and again, this is way back again when Malcolm was around back in the early 90s, with are you a business person trying to run an advisor practice or are you an advisor trying to run a business? Yeah. And, yeah. and to understand, it's just like being left or right-handed. It's not better or worse. It's just some of us are really just designed to sit in front of clients and, and make that magic happen. And some of us are designed to, to, to run, sit at the helms of a business and make that magic happen. Um, and to understand and be humble enough, um, no matter how much experience you've got, what's a good day for you? Which one of those two? Um, because you, as your thing starts to grow, you can't generally do both if you've got a wider, wider span of control. Um, and so the discussions about you've got to know when to say no, advisors, that's very difficult for an advisor. That's like I'm in an AA program with 12 steps in it to start saying no to some people that are really important to me in my life. Um, whereas a business person, you know, I get it. I can't, I can't be all things to all people and I need a list of minimums. Um, and, and do you and, think that's what a lot of your training and coaching is about, is about giving advisors confidence? around their pricing yeah. and packaging and delivery of services? Yeah, I'd, I'd say if someone stops me in the street, so what do you do is that we're a trainer on price. Yep. Um, and, and, and pricing the intangible. Yeah. Uh, when they're not walking out with a desk or something, they're walking out with confidence. The client has to walk out with confidence. I think that's and, and that's the hard piece, that turning intangible to tangible, isn't it? Yeah, every, yeah and doing it every year and getting the client to come back. Um, and that's why we, we, we can't do it. I think our line is that there's only one person to determine the value, and that's your client. Yep. Um, and, you know, you look at the Storm stuff back years ago with Manny Casamatis, and one thing I'm going to take my hat off to that guy is he was a brilliant salesman. Um, but I, I think, and, he, and he, some of the checks that people were writing him uh, back in those days, and, um, and he, was a, he was a client of mine briefly for about 12, 12 months too, yep. back in MLC days. But, but I think fundamentally, and obviously provided you're lying on the right side of the tracks and being ethical in what you're doing, and, and this is where we say the APS 230 standard or our standard, you're saying there cannot be any vested interest uh, in the advice in any way perceived or any way real. Um, and provided that's clearly clear, yep. and it's just in dollar terms, not in percentage terms, then you've got to let the client determine what the price of that is. But if you're not willing to put the price out there, the putts will always miss the cup. You're always going to be guessing what, the, because I'm comparing it to what, that, what the mates are doing or what you know, yes. the super might do or what the lawyer at the road's doing. You can't charge 400 bucks an hour. As soon as you bring relativity back to you, at what I call an input and not an output, you've got a price on the outputs, which is the value you're generating, not the input, which is the amount of product you've got or the amount of, because you know, you can, you can be digging holes all day and they're all in the wrong space. Yes. Yep. It's the output. Yeah. And this is where I think the accounting profession and the legal profession, uh, you know, and I mean, it's right, they've got to give themselves an uppercut. If they still think value is on the amount of hours I've been putting in. That just creates ridiculous work strain, ridiculous workloads and ridiculous expectations that the more you work, the more valuable you are, but the value is always in the mind of the client and their willingness to pay for the value that's being delivered. But they, I don't care how many hours I put in, I can generate tremendous hours in just five minutes, tremendous value, I should say, in just five minutes. Um, and I can work for something. That's right. It's like the, the, surgeon's not, the surgeon's not charging you for hours. Yeah, and I think it's, I, I think this whole, that's a big paradigm for the industry to get off what has been prudent and proven. And I said, look, just get off the fags. You know, I don't yes, think that's it's right. actually going to help you build set build firms. And it's, it's arrogant in some way not to let the client, provided you're absolutely transparent with the price, not to let the client to define the value. And yeah, we do a lot of coaching, a lot of support, and we would be pricing 40 to 80 files a week here. Uh, a, we actually write engagement documents, we price engagement documents for our client. Wow. Um, uh, and that's, that's, a, that's a, 
that's a key role. What a great value add or to give them confidence around delivering it. Yeah, and I think even still, we put it out there and say, oh, it's 12,000, that's a six, that's a 60,000. Oh, geez, you know, we coach them in the conversation, they yep. record the conversation with the client, they share the conversation back with us to really get these micro skills up about pitching the value, um, handling the classic objections, knowing when to pull out, um, knowing even if you do sign a big one, as we had one yesterday come back to us and say, we just pulled out of that biggest deal we've ever had because they weren't respecting the advice. And I think that's that's all part of it, just sort of how we actually get around that house approach, delivering valuable, profitable. And, move, um, and, yeah, and moving advice. to a, a true profession. Yeah. So what's it look like? Let's get the crystal ball out in five years' time. What's it look like, Jim? I think, well, five years, probably ten years, I guess. Yeah. I, I think our, the old terms of accountant, lawyer, planner, insurance specialist, will, it's, I, think we'll, I think we're just moving to a world where the client will seek out an advisor. Yep. I think, yes, we'll need specialists um, in certain areas, but I think we'll have a greater recognition and need in the consumers for people seeking out an advisor. An advisor is just that. They're project managers of people's lives. I will need some technical part done in accounting or technical part done yep. in legal or otherwise. Um, I think there'll be a younger profession. I think it'll be... It'll take off like, um, for me, the whole, once we decouple product from advice, it's sort of like what happened in the PC industry when everyone got one on their desk or even on one, everyone on their wrist. It just went to a whole news paradigm that we could never predict back in the late 70s and 80s when we were still thinking that the phones were stuck into the wall and the computers were in some air-conditioned room. And so trying to guess when we start, well, what does this advisory profession look like it's only going to be fed by one thing. It's just people's uncertainty, um, not people's product need. Yes. Not people's risk. It's just people only need advice when they're facing uncertainty that by themselves they can't resolve. And so it's not when I have to do a product transfer. I think the commoditization of the product, as you talked about, will just inevitably create more and more uh, Aldi, Coles, Woolies examples in the product space um, that will be global providers and will talk in, they'll get to understand what a bit is and be trading their, their funds on you know, one or two bips, not 50 bips or 0.5% yes. or 100%. But out of the evolution of that, it doesn't, there'll be actually a huge market for people just seeking advice. And whether the advice is for a year, for five years, it's just up to the value that people are pegging to that relationship they have with that individual that's removing as many financial surprises from their lives as possible so they can, they can do things. And I think once people have access to, should I start this business? When can I start the family? You know, how do I help? My parents were actually living longer than ever lived before. And I think this it's going to make our aged care system much better, our retirement system much better, our second, third, fourth career system much better because we've now got these leverage points, these, these advisors just being paid on the value they're adding to help people make decisions in the past. I didn't have the confidence to, because I, it wasn't a tax issue and it wasn't a legal issue and it wasn't insurance. Yeah. I'll just do it myself. It was this big jigsaw puzzle, but I could never figure out how it fits into my life. Yeah, and we, but we did find the great accountant. We did find the great lawyer um, who who could help us with some of that stuff, but still they were still wedded on an hourly rate or they yeah. were wedded on a product being enforced or whatever ridiculous. I understand the origins of it, but I think not only is, it, is the advice profession going to bloom, but I think it's going to help bloom every other industry and profession it then touches. Jim, that, that's some great insights in there, mate. So what, what about for you personally? We, we love to talk about content and context and context for us is this sort of live love learn legacy what's it look like for uh-huh. you for the next five years in terms of oh. your life and <laughs> my, old, my old 
old man used to tell me, Scott, the only fame you want is that of your family. And yeah. uh, <laughs> I'm pretty, I think, as we said before, the umbilical cord very much attached to 20-somethings, four 20-somethings I've got in my life, which is great. Um, so, look, I, I never plan to stop. For me, you know, I think the more we do, the more we know what we can do. Um, yeah, I'd like to put out a few more books and stuff like that. The, the biggest legacy, I think, is that to, to do this big paradigm transfer where, unfortunately, only probably 20% or more of Australians get access to advice at the moment, but I'd like to think by the time I'm done, that's shifted up to 80% of Australians now get access to advice. Um, not because we're just trying to make the thing more affordable, but because we made it more valuable. We've given it more context around the complexity people are facing. Um, and if we played some small part in helping to build a platform that leverages more and more advisors to be able to have that capability, delivery and confidence to do that and build a big business, then I'll be, I'll be very happy with that sort of legacy. Tons of things we've still got to learn. And that's why in some ways you know, every new book we put out, every new client we grab, we find stuff we, oh shit, we got that wrong. We've got to do it again. Um, and I, I enjoy that. We'll continue to enjoy it. Um, as long as I can stay here, we're, Heaven meets earth in Manly, probably the best <laughs> thing in the world. Um, and occasionally keep my lovely wife happy and maybe reduce the golf handicap. Oh, there you go. Oh, that sounds like a complete life to me. So, Jim, we might finish there. I know we could, we could talk forever, and if, if you don't mind, I sure. might get you back on again. But, sure, I'd love to. But, and I, I know I've pu- uh, privately acknowledged you, but I really would like to publicly acknowledge you. Um, you are a credit to yourself and your family, but you've really... No, I'm serious, mate. You've really you, helped advance this industry to a profession. And, and I say that you're, you know, you're a leader in this, in this field, mate. So I just really Thank want you, to Scott. acknowledge Thank you. Thank you. And look, I think we've got the best job in the world, um, you know, because I've got to work with people like you over a long period of time and a lot of other great stuff, Patrick's, uh, Malcolm Payne's, a uh, little bit of all that stuff. And because... You know, as consultants, we never do a real job. We just see how other people are doing a real job and pick up those little bits and <laughs> put it out in their book. It's a great job. And but, so, um, but as I say, we haven't started yet. And you have, but you're having a very big impact, mate. So you should be able to look Thank in the you. mirror and be proud of what you've done and, and what Thank you, you are God. doing. So I'll, I'll just get you to give my wife a call. If you don't yeah, know. I will, mate. Happy to do that. <laughs> Jim Stackpool, okay, thank so. you. Now, where do, we, where do we track you down, Jim? CertaintyAdviceGroup.com, uh, CertaintyAdviceGroupOneWord.com. Uh, uh, that's our site, and that's where we do most of our stuff. Uh, all our podcasts are there. Uh, our books are there. Our curriculum's there. Our learning is there. Our community is there. CertaintyAdviceGroup.com. Great. Thanks so much, Jim. Okay, Scott. Take care, and thanks for the opportunity. All the best to you. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Gap Podcast. We're all about empowering advisors, giving them additional tools for their toolkit to give great advice. Great advice leads to great business frameworks, which leads to great results for the community.